Good morning, church. Thank you for your generosity this morning. My name is Greg Paris. So glad you're here today. Happy New Year to you. And glad you're here worshiping with us at Union Chapel this morning. Each uh, January, we uh, talk about a very important subject in the life of our church and, and indeed the, the life of a believer, a follower of Jesus. Jesus uh, shared, as recorded in the four Gospels of the New Testament, 38 parables. 38 stories that have contained therein important truths and principles for faith and life. And it's interesting to note that of the 38 parables recorded in the New Testament, 16 of them, 50% of those parables have to do with money and possessions. That's curious, isn't it? We also know that there are 500 verses in the Bible, something like that, around the subject of prayer and, and faith and that sort of thing. Uh, some hundreds of verses on love and relationships. But pertaining to money and possessions, there's over 2,000 verses de dedicated to this subject. And so we wonder why so much emphasis on this. And it's not because God needs the money. It's not because the church needs the money. It's because we need to be generous. God knows that this is an essential, essential part of who we are as followers of Jesus, that if we're generous people, it tends toward blessing and contentment and life. And so I hope that you appreciate the perspective and the motivation for why we talk about this subject because it adds so much value to our personal lives and, of course, our corporate life together. So this morning I've chosen as our references, first from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, one verse there from Jesus, and then from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so I invite you to do so as you're able. Thank you so much. And so Matthew 6, 21, Jesus said, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then from Deuteronomy 28, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands, I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You'll be blessed in the city, blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. And the blessings continue in this text. I just, you know, you got the idea, you got the picture. So today, may you be blessed in the hearing of God's word and made applicable to your life. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Now, what if you knew, what if you knew that God wants to bless your life with every kind of good thing? What if you knew that? What if you believed that, that God wants to bless your life with everything good, everything good that you can imagine. Yeah. What I, what I uh, know is that the scripture actually promises such a thing. Here are some phrases out of the scripture in context to open the windows of heaven and give you a blessing that you could not contain, to give you wells you did not dig and vineyards you did not plant, houses you did not build, to fill your barns with overflowing. These are all references that the Bible brings promise to our lives for blessing and contentment and life. Today, I want to just mention four things that will tend towards this kind of blessing and contentment in life. 
And so I hope it'll be meaningful to you. Here's the first point. It's on your outline. You might want to write this down. God's will is for you to experience an abundant life, an abundant life. Jesus said, recorded in John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. There's that word, abundant. So it means super abundant in quantity, superior in quality, an abundant life, an overflowing life, all the way to the, to the top and then overflowing. That's the life that God has promised us. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 8. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. What we gain from these two verses is very clear. It's clear that the government is not your source. God is. The stock market is not your source. God is your source. Your IRA, your 401k, your retirement plan, your pension fund is not your source. God is. Your rich relatives are not your source. God is. Some of you are counting on that. This is an announcement, newsflash. They're not your source. God is. And when you believe that, you believe what I just said, it will change the way you go through the world, the way you manage the resources God has placed at your disposal. I love Psalm, the first Psalm, Psalm 1, the first three verses. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. In other words, don't hang out with scoundrels. Uh, Build good relationships with good people. Because there are those who delight in the law of the Lord and who meditate on his law day and night. Last week we suggested that the scripture, the Bible, is God's first and most important authority in our life as it pertains to what we should believe and how we should practice that faith. And so the Bible promises if you delight yourself in God's word, meditate on it day and night, what's the promise? That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. That sounds good, doesn't it? Feels good, seems right. That's consistent with what I'm suggesting, that God wants you to have an abundant life, and so you'll be a person who prospers. Joshua 1.8 confirms this whole theme. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous. Then you will have success. Sounds good, doesn't it? Sounds like an abundant life. So God has a will for you to experience an abundant life. Now let's pause a moment. There are people in this room right now, you don't believe it. You don't believe God has good for you. You've had experiences, you've had seasons of life that have, that have been difficult, maybe even devastating to you. You have a story and you do not believe that God has an abundant, overflowing life for you. And I'm here to tell you that you've been believing a lie because Almighty God has promised you an abundant life. He wants your life to be filled with contentment and blessing and hope. Amen. Receive that today. It's the truth. You want to believe what's most true. That's true. Swallow that. Take that in. And as you believe that, it will change the way you go through the world. God wants you to have an abundant life. Here's number two. You might want to write this down. God owns all the wealth in the world. He's the owner. He owns it all. Now, there's a parable that Jesus shared with us. Uh, Matthew 25 shares this 
this parable, this story, and it's a parable about bags of gold that a certain owner distributes to his servants. The first verse goes like this. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. So right away, we see differing roles in this story. God is the owner of all things, including money, has rights. Owner has rights. He owns it all so he can manage, he can manipulate, he can monitor it any way he chooses. He's the owner. He has rights. Then as stewards, as servants, as managers, as the story portrays, we have responsibilities. So God, the owner, has rights. We, the stewards, have responsibilities. Therefore, listen to this carefully, the way we manage the resources God puts in our possession always has spiritual implications. There's a connection. We're back to our opening verse. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So in other words, the way you have patterns of spending and saving and giving are a reflection of who you really are in relationship with God. Now, don't push, don't push back on that. Let that settle. Absorb that for a moment. Let me say it a different way. The way you manage money is a direct reflection of your relationship with God. Direct reflection. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your heart's for God, then your treasure will follow. There's a direct connection. For example, if a family takes a trip to Hawaii, it costs $10,000, and that was a big budget item in that year for them, and everybody got to go to Hawaii, and, and the contribution to the church and kingdom expansion that year was $100, that speaks to your relationship with God. If you uh, go out at the end of the year and you know you can get a good deal on a new car at the end of the year and you spend $35,000 on a new car because you need a new car, okay, so you spend $35,000 on a new car, but you only manage to put 50 bucks in the Christmas offering, that speaks to your relationship with God. There's a direct correlation. If you had intentions to actually contribute to the faith promise to local and global mission initiatives through the life of your church last year, but you weren't able to give anything because your poodle got sick and your vet bills were $1,250, that kind of threw you off. Now, I'm sure your, your poodle is beautiful and cuddly and warm and fuzzy, and, and if I met little Fluffy, I'd love the dog just like you do, but I've always been curious about this. Did you know that in the United States, there's much more money spent on dog and cat food than there is on strategic kingdom initiatives? There's more money spent in America on, on chewing gum and breath mints than on kingdom initiatives. That may not be true in your life, but generally it's true. I've always wondered what Christian people are going to say when they stand before God and admit that they spent more on their dogs and cats than they did in the kingdom of God. How many of you know that's probably not going to go over well when you say it that way? Yeah. So remember, you're the steward. He is the owner. He owns it all. And, and that's an important perspective to have. That leads to the third thing I'd like to say. It's number three on your outline, and that is our choices reflect our heart. Our choices. Last week, we mentioned that in order to be a good steward of financial resources, 80% of it is about behaviors. So, so the, the decisions you make, the choices you make, the way you behave is 80% of it, and about 20% of it is, is about skills and about knowledge. 
Now, we're offering Financial Peace University, which is the best thing available right now. It is, it is best practice out there for giving you a good foundation for how to manage money. And that class begins next week at this hour, 10 o'clock in the chapel. You should go. Uh, you heard Pastor Glenn say we have these sponsorships. If, if the $109 is a hindrance to you, we have people who have already been blessed, having taken financial peace. They will pay your way for you. So all you have to do is connect with Pastor Glenn. You just got, got to make one call, send one text, write one email, and you're in. Here's a, here, we're taking it to another level. Next week's first meeting is free. You say, well, I'm not sure I want to invest $100 in something. I don't know if it's going to really help me. Go to the first meeting for nothing. Just go. 10 o'clock next week. Go to financial peace. If you keep hesitating and not, and not attending financial peace, soon you will be the last person in the United States who has not taken financial peace university. You don't want to be on that list. There's only going to be four of you left, and you're going to look stupid, and somebody, <laughs> nobody wants that. So take financial peace. It will transform your life. It's so good. And we've reduced, have I reduced all the barriers? Do we need to pick you up and bring you? Walk you in? You can do it. Our choices reflect our heart. Yeah. Deuteronomy chapter 30, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I've set before you life and death. This is Moses before the nation. Blessings and curses. Now choose life that you and your children may live. What we know happens in life, we've observed this uh, in others and we've experienced it, most of us here in our own practices, and that is that it's true. When you are a person who's open-hearted and open-handed, you're a generous person, you, you experience, you benefit from being a person who is generous with your words, with your emotions, with your relationships, with your, with your money. You're just a, a person who's generous. And that always has benefits, contentment and blessing in life. It, it comes like that. We can summarize the whole thing in two words, giver's gain. Giver's gain. Uh, but you have to make a choice to be a generous person. You have to make a choice to be a giver. That's my point. The principle is actually better defined as the principle of reciprocity. There's a great verse in the New Testament, Luke 6.38, that defines the reciprocal nature of our relationship with God. Let me put that on the screen. Uh, look at it. Give, it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use... It will be measured to you. This, is, this, this verse applies to any category. I mean, you can apply it to money, but, it, but you know, if you're a person who's lonely, you need a friend, then here's what this verse suggests. Be a friend to someone else, and you'll receive what you need. I mean, sim just bring it down to simplify it. You know, I need a hug. Well, find someone appropriately and hug them. Give them a hug. If you need a hug, give a hug. If you need a friend, be a friend. That's the way it works, the reciprocal nature of God. If someone says, I'm not getting anything from God, my suspicion is that person's not giving anything to God because it's a reciprocal relationship. God's not doing anything for me. It may be because you're not doing anything for God because that's how it works. And God's not going to be indebted to you, not going to come to the end of time, the end of your life, and somehow, you know, you, God's short on his account to you. Are you kidding God's not going to owe you anything at the end. You can be confident in knowing 
that as you give, it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. That's the way it works. Let me put it in this context. Um, does a farmer, a local farmer, f- people in our church, people who are friends of ours, people that we know in this region of the world, these, these grain farmers, do they expect to gain when they throw 10,000 pounds of seed into the ground this spring? I can tell you what the answer is because I know how much money they have to leverage to put that seed and fertilizer in the ground. Yeah, they expect a return. Guarantee you they do. Yeah, they can't afford not to have a return. And so giving is a choice like that. Being a generous person is a choice like that. Tithing is a choice like that. The Bible actually says if you choose not to tithe, Malachi chapter 3, verse 9, that you live under a curse. Boy, that sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? It's just fair warning is what it is. If you believe God owns everything, that he is your source and wants to provide for you and give you an abundant life, if you actually believe that, then you'll actually begin to order your life so that you can be faithful as a generous person. That's what you'll do. If you choose not to be a generous steward, then God calls you a thief, shuts off the flow. Malachi 3.10. If you choose to be generous, then God opens the windows of heaven, pours out a blessing on you you can't contain. So you are, are, is that preacher talk? You just you yanking our chain? I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the truth. Beth and I have been tithers for nearly 50 years. I wouldn't be caught dead not tithing. In fact, after I'm dead, whatever assets I leave will also be invested in the kingdom of God. I'm not going to stand in front of God and and answer goofy questions about why did you spend all your money buying cars and clothes and houses and dog food, (laughs) to go back to the metaphor, (laughs) and not appropriately in the kingdom of God. I I don't want to have that moment. I'm not, I'm just not going to have it. So every week in the context of our worship, when the offering is collected, you know what that is? That's decision time. That's the choosing time. I came across a a paper online the other day called thefederalist.com. It's from that resource, thefederalist.com. That's the resource if you want to look this up. And the heading on this particular paper, and again, this is about choices, was the research proves the number one social justice imperative is, the number one social justice imperative is, now this is a current question, isn't it? Because we have lots of people who are all about social justice. We have, you know, a whole culture now of social warriors and have all kinds of issues that are being bantered about. And you you have these questions of inequality and, and opportunity And some of these questions are very important for us to wrestle with. Others of them are from a narrative that just, you know, warps reality and rationality. But we have all of these issues, inequality based on race or gender or age or or segment of the country, you know, and and income inequality and all this conversation going on. Here's the title of this report. The research proves the number one social justice imperative is marriage. 1950, 70 years ago, social mobility and protection from poverty were largely a factor of employment. We know that 70 years ago or so, if you had a full-time job, chances are you weren't going to be poor in America. 
Now, fast forward 20 years to 1970, that's 50 years ago. Education at that time marked the gulf separating the haves from the have-nots. This was, this was the mantra back in, when, I, when I was uh, uh, growing into adulthood and considering secondary education, this was the mantra in our culture. If you don't have a good education, you can't get a good job and you're not going to be able to make a living. Now fast forward to the last 20 years, beginning about the year 2000. For these 20 years or more, now marital status, not full-time work, not education, but marital status has increasingly become the central factor in whether our neighbors and their children rise above, remain, or descend into poverty. This research is astounding. In 1960, we know that people who were poorly or moderately educated were about 10% less likely to be married than the college educated. But the numbers were still pretty close. People who were not highly educated were married at about 84%. People who were college educated, this is 60 years ago, 1960, were married about 94% of the time. So just about 90% of the, of the population was married in 1960. Now, Professor Bill Galston, who was President Clinton's domestic policy advisor and now senior fellow at Brookings Institute, explained that in the early 1990s, that an American need only do three things to avoid living in poverty. So now for 20 years plus, we have, we, we have the statistical data and the proof, the facts in place that three things, if you do these things, you will not be impoverished. Number one, graduate from high school. Number two, marry before having a child. And number three, have that child after age 20. Only 8% of people who do so will be poor, who fail in those three. While 79% of those who fail will be poor in these three categories. Now think about it. If you follow the sequence, you have a 92% chance of avoiding poverty in your life. I'm talking about choices now. If you want to eliminate poverty, then get these three things in the right order. I mean, there are organizations, there are, there are institutions, there are people all over America, the government on through private sector who want to eliminate poverty. We have a problem with poverty, this inequality of resource in our culture. And now there's research that actually gives the formula for how to avoid poverty. It's, this is amazing. It's amazing. You have a 79% chance you will be in poverty if you fail in one of these three. Graduate from high school, marry before having a child, and have that child after age 20. This is astonishing. This should be shouted from every housetop in America. Sociologists have referred to keeping these three things in order as the success sequence. Both the Brookings Institute and the American Enterprise Institute confirm these findings around this statement, quote, first comes love, then comes marriage. <laughs> Research focusing on millennials. Now we have in the room today, we have, a, we have a generational um, diversity. We have members of the builder generation. These are the oldest among us. You have my generation, baby boomers. We have gen, generation Xers in the room and we have millennials, Gen Z, and, and probably a few alphas. So we're all in the room. Research focusing on millennials. Follow this millennials. 
reports that 97% of those who follow the success sequence earn at least a high school diploma, work and marry before having children at age 20, will not be poor. 97% will not be poor. Now, here's a caveat. You may be right now rationalizing, pushing back on this and saying, well, you know, that's not true for ethnic minorities, that's not true for people who are born in poverty. The contrary. And I quote, this is largely true of ethnic minorities and those who grew up in poor families. But sadly, few millennials are keeping these things in order compared to their baby boomer and Gen Xer forebearers. So millennials are not doing well in these three categories. Heads up. We know, we know what causes poverty. The facts are in play. You don't hear this stuff talked about much by the talking heads on cable TV because it doesn't fit the narrative. Because in America now, if you're not a victim, you're not important. This doesn't have anything to, with, have to do with victimhood. This has everything to do with choices. Choices. It's very powerful. Here's a fact I was not aware of until recently. More people now live together who are not married than people who are married. There are more people cohabitating. Back in the day, we used to call that shacking up. Back in the day, we called it shacking up because there was a social stigma against it. See, before the, the, the postmodern, post-Christian era in the last several years in America, we actually had a Judeo-Christian ethic that we lived by and kind of informed our ethics and our practices here in the United States. And so cohabitation was seen as immoral. But we've lowered that stigma we haven't changed the status before God because it is still a sinful behavior, but we've lowered the stigma. And when you lower the stigma on any category, you raise the frequency. And that's true in all these categories, especially related to human sexuality in our culture now that we've neglected and turned our back on God and his word and his ways. And so now anything goes. If you don't believe the Bible true, then just cast the Bible aside and define marriage any way you want. You know, back to your cat. Be married to your cat. That's fine. Married to your cat. Love that cat. So I quote, the success sequence of first comes love, then comes marriage is so much more than moral choice or romantic idealism. So the author is acknowledging that at one time, cohabitation, failing to be married, was about morality or some you know, romantic notion. We, you know, we're just so in love, we want, we want to be warm and fuzzy together in the same house. And, and, but, but, but here's the facts. It's more now than about a moral choice. It is a deeply pragmatic and economic decision powerfully affecting class mobility where people live on the social scale and the opportunities they will be able to provide for their children. This is because of the extraordinary economic power of marriage. Have an ear for this. The consistent and irrefutable mountain of research has shown, reaching back to the 1970s and beyond, that marriage strongly boosts every important measure of well-being for children, women, and men. Pick any measure you can imagine for overall physical and mental health, income, savings, employment, educational success, general life contentment, happiness, sexual satisfaction, even recovery from serious disease, healthy diet, exercise, 
married people rate markedly and consistently better in each of these and so many more categories compared to their single, divorced, and cohabitating peers. It's astonishing. Thus, marriage is an active ingredient in improving one's overall life prospects regardless of class, race, or educational status. That is why it is not merely one parent versus two parent families that make the difference. Now follow this. The Census Bureau finds that the poverty rate for children living in poverty with two unmarried cohabitating parents is similar to that of single mother homes. Well, look, we live together like we're married. We're having a family like we're married. We're both in the house. We're just not married. Statistically speaking, this doesn't work. Married people, regardless of how much money they have, tend to manage their money differently than divorced, single, and cohabitating people. Listen to these numbers. Only 4% of the homes in America where the married mother and father are raising a family are on food stamps. 4% of married couples, husband and wife with children are on food stamps in America. 21% of cohabitating couples raising children are on food stamps. 21%. And 28% of single mother homes require such public assistance. A staggering. Now, you may have gotten lost in all of that stuff. Let me summarize. There is a high correlation between economically winning and finishing high school, getting married, and having children after 20. Direct correlation. These are decisions. These are choices. You are not a victim of your choices. You are a result of your choices. Your good intentions won't get you there. Your hopes and dreams won't get you there. But the direction of your life, the choices you make, the behaviors you engage will determine the destination of your life. And apparently, where you were raised, the color of your skin, your gender, your age, your, your educational level, doesn't have as much to do as these three things. Finish high school, get married, have children after 20. You want to eliminate poverty? Start preaching that. Start preaching that. The research proves the number one social justice imperative is marriage. I want you to think about this a little bit. For example, diligence is a choice. Look at this scripture from Proverbs 13, verse 4. Look at it. Lazy people want much, but get little. But those who work hard will prosper. So as it turns out, our choices determine God's blessing or not. Our choices determine it. The Ten Commandments say, for six days you shall work. In other words, in God's economy, a 60-hour work week is normal. So if you're only working 40 hours a week, then it's like you're slacking off. You're in semi-retirement. Maybe you need to pick it up. And you should know that in the Bible, poverty is always associated with a curse. You can't find the person who's both poor and blessed at the same time. 
It's not a good thing. Poverty is never mentioned as a means of God's blessing. For example, we know sin produces poverty. For example, one drunk driver can change the lives of an entire family in an instant. Addiction produces poverty. Alcoholism brings poverty. Divorce brings poverty. You lose one half the first day and it goes downhill from there. Crime brings poverty. Apparently there's a high price for low living. So our choices reflect our heart and determine whether or not we'll experience God's blessing, God's contentment, God's life. This point has always, produ always uh, produced great silence in the room this weekend. I know you're thinking about it. Last point, we'll be finished. Number four, God wants you to invest in yourself. God wants you to invest in yourself. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And this is where Jesus then added, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Americans have confused these two words. The two words are self-interest and selfishness. Self-interest is good. Selfishness is bad. Self-interest is good. Selfishness is bad. For example, it's in your self-interest to be in right relationship with God. Just assume with me for a moment that the places called heaven and hell are real. You don't have to believe they're real, but assume for a moment both of these places are real and real people go to these real places, heaven and hell. Now, if that's, assuming that's true, let me just ask you a simple question. To which do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Well, it's in your best interest to want to go to heaven and not to hell. And the way that you get to heaven is in a right relationship with God through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. It's in your best interest to develop a relationship with God through the means he's provided, his son, Jesus Christ. It's in your best interest, long-term interest, eternal interest to get your, right, your life right with God through a personal relationship with Jesus. And I, I just want to emphasize again that God wants you to invest in yourself. Yeah. See, it's in your self-interest to be happy. Why is that? It's because a merry heart makes good like a medicine. Happy people are healthier people. The Bible says that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Happy people are strong people who are vital people. Jesus gave us three cheers. Watch this. It's all in the New Testament. He said, be of good cheer. Your sins have been forgiven you. He said, be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Jesus said, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Three cheers for Jesus. Oh, we could do a whole sermon series on that. Your sins are forgiven. Don't be afraid. I've overcome for you. So it's in your self-interest to invest in the kingdom of God. And Jesus wants you to be invested in yourself. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields, for my sake, Jesus said, Matthew 19, will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Isn't that great? What a wonderful promise. A hundredfold return. A hundredfold return. Let me just give you some perspective on that. If you make $50,000 this year and you get a hundredfold return, next year you'd be making $5 million. How many of you think that's a great idea? Come on, that's, that's a hundredfold. 
By the way, I did some research in the life of our church. You know, I started passing this church almost 40 years ago. And from then until now, Union Chapel, in terms of the resources and assets that God has given us to impact the world for Christ, has increased by more than a hundredfold. That's amazing. That's amazing. So friends, let me just remind you, when you invest in the kingdom of God, it's yours forever. It's good on this side of the Jordan River, and it's good on the other side of the Jordan River. God has an abundant life in in store for you. So hear his word, meditate on it, take it into your life, assimilate it into your thoughts, your behaviors, and your choices. And as you do that, God has promised a life filled with blessing and contentment and hope. Amen? Did you get it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for your word, which lamps our feet, lights our path. Thank you, O oh God, that you have made clear to us your expectations and the wonderful opportunities presented to us as we hear your word and obey. So God, fill us with these convictions so that our choices are sound, that we take appropriate interest in ourselves so that you are honored and our lives matter. Help us now. Give us the strength we need in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us?